0: To the Monday Morning Pastor podcast. This podcast is brought to you by a partnership between Christianity Today and Kairos Partnership. Well, hello everyone. I'm Doug Moister. I'm one of the co-hosts of the Monday Morning Pastor. Um, really glad that you're with us this morning, or this afternoon, or this evening, or whatever time that you're tuning in. Even if it's on a Tuesday, that's totally fine. We're just glad that that you are a part of the conversation. Um, and this conversation is really specific. Uh, overall, the feel of Monday Morning Pastor simply is to equip, encourage. Uh, and undergird pastors on some of the hardest days of the week. and Mondays are tough as is, but Mondays on the tail end of a global pandemic can be even more challenging. Um, our Our interview today is with a good friend of ours, uh, Adam Avery. He's a pastor in Burlington, Vermont. And the story of his church is just a beautiful story, a, a story of of churches merging together and and utilizing facilities together um, it's a, it's, a, it's a story about a, a guy who really knows how to lead a staff well and who is part of a team leadership. And so there's just so much to learn from Adam, and we're just grateful for the time that he had uh, to, to be with us. And we know that this conversation is going to be encouraging to you all. So we hope that you enjoy this conversation, and thank you so much for listening and for being part of the Monday Morning Pastor crew. Our guest today is Pastor Adam Avery. Adam is the lead pastor at The Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. He's a graduate of Portland Bible College and Trinity College of the Bible. In August of 2008, Adam and his family packed up their belongings along with 12 years of pastoral staff experience and moved to Vermont to plant a church, Mosaic Burlington. In the summer of 2012, Mosaic merged with St. Andrew's Christian Church and became Church at the Well. He's a serious football enthusiast who also enjoys songwriting. He's been known to enjoy a good football party and occasionally hides out in the recording studio. He lives in Williston with his wife, Michelle, and their four children, Jared, Judah, Joshua, and Sophie. We hope you enjoy this conversation with our friend, Adam Avery.
1: Well, good to see you, Doug. Uh, I will say it's a little bit different to hear you this morning. It's very, but, uh, it's very
0: true. I sound a lot different. <laughs> yes,
1: you sound a little bit like a a sick smoker slash Eugene Peterson. So tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on here.
0: Well, if I sound like Eugene Peterson, I will take that as the best compliment. <clears throat> but yeah, um, I got a cold, and the cold went straight to my to my vocal cords, and. I sound like a frog and it, <laughs> or like a frog who seems to be going through puberty at the same time because well, my voice will crack a, and it gets crazy. Pubescent frog with a pastoral heart. So right, there we, I yeah. like that. That sounds like a children's yeah. book I could work so, on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, well, all that to say, it's not to be outdone by our guest uh, here today, a friend of both Doug and myself for the last several years, Adam Avery. So, Adam, so good to see you. Thanks for joining us here on the podcast.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm a long time listener, first time caller.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, man, it's, uh, there's so much we could talk about and I have so many different directions I could even start with. We know who you are and your context and people have heard just uh, a little bit of, you know, your bio, but what are some things that are not in an official bio that would be important for people to know who is Adam Avery? What makes you tick? What do you love? What's your calling?
2: Well, I I moved to Burlington, Vermont in 2008 with my family to plant a church. Um, I'll say that it was more naivety than courage that got me here, but God used it. Um, I don't know, a bio that nobody knows. I once was punched by Bernie Sanders.
1: Yes. (laughs) I love hearing this story. Tell tell this story. This is a great story. I love it. Tell the story. We gotta hear it.
2: Sure. So <laughs> <laughs> the first several years that I was here, I was bivocational. And one of my jobs was a TSA agent. And that was a really tough job. You know, you're basically patting down people and conf- confiscating their toothpaste. <laughs> you're not liked. <laughs> but um the Burlington Airport's really small. There's only two checkpoints. And so Bernie would fly out. Every Monday to go to DC to work. And so I had opportunities to talk with him often. And I remember one day he was coming through the checkpoint and kind of disheveled Bernie. <laughs> a of and, and, I, and I asked him, Bernie, what are we going to do about the Federal Reserve? And he gave me that Bernie glare, you know, with the Bernie eyes. And he gave me the, the Bernie point. And he said, Not many people know about the danger of the Federal Reserve. I was, and he just went on a Bernie tirade and I was all about it uh, and I got to talk to him a little bit about it and he did something really unexpected he made a fist and he punched me in my arm and I wasn't expecting it right so I kind of like it, it knocked me off balance and, 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 and um, I did the little hop shuffle uh, just because I wasn't expecting it it wasn't, it wasn't a hostile punch it was a indeed. it was an
1: attaboy punch. it was, a, it was
2: like hey you know, you got it, boy. Kind of punch. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's my punch by Bernie. Story. That,
1: That's—I mean—there th- are very few ways to start a two truths and a lie game better than I got punched by Bernie Sanders. I mean, that's oh, that's, that's an great. awesome intro uh, to a party, and uh, I'm so glad you told that story. Yes, and, uh, it's so fascinating. And well, I know your story, and I've, I've been up to Burlington, and I love what you're doing at Church at the Well. Um, but I know it hasn't been all rainbows and unicorns, and so I'm wondering. You know, you talk about naivete getting you there, but faith kind of keeping you there. And I know because you've told me there have been many opportunities where you could have quit, where it would have been tempting. Um, I wonder if you can articulate some of the difficulties that you've experienced through the years. And maybe, you know, as kind of the nature of this podcast, maybe if you're willing to share, what kept you in the game? Yeah, sure. Why didn't you quit?
2: Yeah, well, I knew coming here. At the time when I came here, Burlington was the least church city in the country. And so I knew, even though I was naive of what it would look like, I knew that it was going to be six, seven years before we really uh, got going. And, and And you know this 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 town has kind of been known as the place where church plants come to die because they come with the idea of, hey, we'll get there. we'll have a a kick in worship and worship in, We'll put a sign out front. And we'll we'll start a church, and, and churches that do that they don't last. You know they're here for a year or two. And so when we got here, we didn't even start anything. Um, my wife and I got jobs. We started meeting people, got our kids in school, and it was a year before we even started anything. And we had that that privilege because the church that I was on staff at the previous twelve years uh, gave me a whole year salary. And so just go get settled. Mm. And so that was a huge blessing. Um, but yeah, I I think one of the biggest challenges honestly was the obscurity that comes with being bivocational in a post-Christian context where, you know, it's going to be, um, a number of years before people trust you, before you have the relational capital to talk to people about Jesus without them, um, thinking that you have an agenda. Um, I think like in our context, the church is viewed as an organization that that doesn't have very much to, back, to offer of value to the community. you know at churches in New England they're, they're just these buildings that are vacant all week and they open up for an hour and a half on Sunday and take up this space and so there's a lot of cynicism uh, towards towards the church. Um, but that being said um that being said, when you earn the relational capital and you're here for a while and you just keep showing up, there's so much beautiful ministry that happens. Like, like mm. people open up, and and um that's been a joy. That's been that's been a gift. It's also been really hard. You know, I think being being bivocational for the first six and a half years that I was here was was really hard, harder than I anticipated. If I would have known how hard that was, I don't know if I would have came.
1: Mm. Mm. So in a culture of celebrity, how do you, how, how do you now, when I mean, you talked about obscurity being so difficult, so in a culture of celebrity, what are ways or practices in which you sort of press against that? Maybe you're just forced to mm. involuntarily, but what are ways that not only for you, but how, how can we as pastors who are listening to this press against that and sort of lean into that obscurity, not as a curse, but actually as a blessing?
2: Hmm. can I tell you a story please um years ago the church that I was previously at I grew up in that church and I went on staff at that church for for about 12 years before coming here and I was the worship leader and youth pastor and um one night uh, it was a midweek service I was leading worship but it was one of those nights when I didn't want to leave worship Any worship leader who's on staff knows what I'm talking about. You have to put a set together. And this was the night before Thanksgiving. And so it had to be a praise kind of set. I was not feeling a praise kind of set. Right? So I I hobbled together a set. And one of the songs was the old classic song by Rich Mullins, Our God is an Awesome God. You know that song. Yeah. And so that was kind of like my anchor song of, of our set. And then the night before Thanksgiving, our church would have an open mic So it'd be an extended praise and worship with an open mic for testimony and for sharing what you're grateful for, what you're thankful for. And after we sang that song, my friend Joe got up at the mic and he said, you know, our God is an awesome God. No matter what happens to us, if we get sick, our God's an awesome God. If we lose our job, our God's an awesome God. If we lose a loved one, our God's still an awesome God. Well, the next morning, there was a bunch of guys from our church that would always go on a Thanksgiving hunt in the morning. In this particular year, there was over 20 guys that showed up, which is, if you're a hunter, you know that's a lot too many. <laughs> but it's one of those things like, what do you do? do you, you send people home? And so they went into the woods and one of the guys from that hunting party accidentally shot Joe's brother, his twin brother, Jake. And he died. And Joe was able to find him in the woods and spend the last few moments with his twin brother, holding him in his arms. And I got the phone call, because I I wasn't hunting. I'm not a hunter. But I got the phone call um, about 7 o'clock in the morning. Went up to the hospital. And when I arrived there, there was Joe in the waiting room, covered from head to toe in his brother's blood. And he walks up to me and he hugs me with tears in his eyes. And I kid you not, the first words out of his mouth were Adam, our God's still an awesome God. And I just about collapsed to the floor. It was one of the most powerful Jesus moments of my life. And the reason I tell that story, JR, to your question, is nobody knows who Joe Hazleton is. He just plays drums in the church band and works a nine-to-five, and he's in the Army Reserves. He's a great guy. But I don't know. There's something about pastoral ministry that I love that is obscure and isn't seen. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do. we we have our Sunday morning thing, right, where we're teaching and we're talking to our church in, in, in a public setting, and we're seen and we're listened to. But one of the things I love about pastoral ministry is that the parts that nobody sees. Mm. And, and I, I, I so appreciate pastors with, with platforms that write books. And I mean, you guys have many of them on the podcast here, you know, guys like Rich Velotis and AJ Swoboda and John Mark Comer. I benefit tremendously from those guys. But if I'm honest, I, I don't want what they have. I just want to be like my friend, Joe. Mm. And, and pastor people and step into spaces like that that nobody nobody else was in that waiting room just you and I nobody else saw that um, those moments I don't know they form me and they shape me and they keep me going it's not the Sunday morning times that keep me going it's not the teaching and preaching although I love to do that um, in our church context but it's the other it's the other bit that keeps That's- me at it and being invited into those spaces of, of people in, in my church congregation that nobody else gets to see. And I just get to listen and be present and and pray with them. And that just makes me want to get up and do it again.
0: Adam, I, <clears throat> I sense that, a lot of pastors feel very seen right now in the sense where uh, this is kind of why we do this podcast, because we, we, we want pastors to, to recognize that it's, it's not just about those people with platforms. And, and I love how you honor that, but I also love how you, you see the role of the everyday ordinary stuff in these moments that transcend what happens on a Sunday as these deeply connective uh, things with God and with people. Um, And I think there's something about that, that place of sometimes feeling lonely or isolated in that unseen role. How would you encourage pastors who may feel like they're, they're, they're with you in that, but there's also the sense of, I just wish someone would notice, or I wish someone would see.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, I think, I think that. I think that sometimes, and I was definitely this way in my young years in ministry, uh, I think sometimes we attach our worth and value to what we do and the being seen part and the being listened to part. I know that during COVID, the first the first year of the COVID, we went 18 months without worshiping together indoors at our church in Vermont, which was extremely hard. The first year of it, though, I remember feeling like, man, I miss being listened to. <laughs> I love the part where I go and sit with people and listen and go on walks and um I love that part of being a pastor, but I recognized, oh, I kind of miss that part of being listened to because you know during those eighteen months, I was still talking with people, getting together with people doing all the one on one, the pastoral ministry, um, having conversations with people that are really meaningful and rich, but I was actually surprised at how much I missed being listened to, and it was just a good reminder to me that. Um, I think for us as pastors, it, it, we, we, you know, Jesus went 30 years in obscurity before starting his public ministry. And that's the son of God, the most anointed, talented, gifted preacher, uh, e- evangelist, like ever to walk the planet. And yet 30 years, he was just the carpenter and the carpenter's son. And I think COVID was a, a good reminder to me that obscurity, although it's hard, is a gift. And it reminds me that I, my value does not come from what I do. It does not come from how many people listen to me or see me. It just comes from being a child of God. And, um, yeah, it helps me refocus on just the pastoral ministry of, of, of that obscurity. I think, I think it's a gift, strangely enough.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Adam, you, it, it has not been easy when you moved up there you were bivocational it's a hard place to do ministry and then of course you know the last few years the just what's happened around the globe it's just been unrelenting right unprecedented whatever word we want to use so when you have those low days you know we hear about david in the psalms like he, he like talks to himself right he says my heart will say right so he's like talking himself out of some of these dark pits what are some of the things you Need to cultivate in your own life to either talk or live yourself out of that pit on those days where you're just like, is this worth it? This is too freaking hard.
2: Yeah. For, for me, one of the things I have to do is get outside, um, whether that's, you know, running or playing basketball or just going out and sitting by the lake or walking my dog. Um, something I've been doing lately. Um my, my two older boys are grown up and out of the house now. But when they were little, they tricked me into getting a dog. I'm not a dog person. But now they're grown up and left the house and guess who's taking care of the dog? And so what I've been doing um the last few months is just leaving my phone in the house and just going outside and spending some time with Bandit and Jesus. And just like just I can't tell you, like it's so simple and so silly sounding even as I say it, but that's just been refreshing to me of just kind of Mm. like yeah you know what like today might be filled of surprises and hardships and disappointments um but i have this space right here Mm. Mm. Um, but yeah just being outside physical exertion doing things like that have been really helpful to me to kind of ground me a little bit more Mm. um while i'm in the context of ministry here yeah Mm. 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 What do you
1: know now, Adam, you wish you knew when you started in ministry?
2: I think if, if I were to talk to my younger self, um, I, I would probably say longevity is what's going to matter to you the most. Not flashiness, not events, not moments. It's going to be the long haul that you come to appreciate and value. And I've been in occupational ministry now for 26 years, and still want to do it. And I just think that's amazing and wonderful. And and if, and if you know, like I told the story about my friend Joe, if I can just at the end of my time, if I can, um, just do that, I I I feel like I'll I've done something, you know. And, and I enjoy it, and I want to do it. Um, so yeah, longevity. I would tell myself like, play the long game. Play the long
0: game. Yeah. Yeah. Have have you noticed any um maybe shifts in ministry over over the over the long haul, over the twenty six years? Like even just thinking for the pastor who's just starting out, um, maybe for the one who's about fifteen to twenty years in, what are some themes that maybe you've noticed in your own journey of ministry? In the in the ways in which you were shaped or formed or Leadership opportunities that you had in the midst of those early years and mid years?
2: Yeah. uh, To even um, elaborate a little bit on what I just said, it's like uh, to answer that question, Doug, I think like you have this idea early on that events carry a huge amount of weight. And now later on in my ministry, I look back and be like, wow, those were meaningful events. And but but they they didn't carry the momentum and the weight that I thought they did. It's just that sh- it's just that showing up that carries the weight. It's just it's showing up every day. And I think you had asked earlier, like, going through kind of the the, the hard times of ministry and starting out here, like how how, you, how do you still do it? And I, I just think it's honestly just having the tenacity to say, "Okay, Jesus, I'm here, I'm just going to show up today, and I don't feel like I have much to offer, and I'm not sure if there'll be any moments that you invite me into, but I'm here. And I'm going to show up and I'm going to keep coming. I'm going to be physically present and emotionally present as I can and available. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I, I think that's how I would answer that question.
1: Mm. Well, you know, we asked, you know, what do you know now you wish you, you know, could tell your younger self? Once you think of yourself 20 years out into the future, mm. what do you want to tell your future past yourself?
2: Mm. I, I would probably, I would probably ask a question to my future pastor self, and and that is, um, how many more pivots are there for the church and for us as pastors that we have to get ready for? Mm. That's a great question. I've, I've I've noticed that these past two years there's so much pivoting, and um, there have been times when when I've been tempted to believe the lie the church isn't going to make it not our church, the American church, just be with all the political polarization and um, racial tension and nationalism and consumerism and you know, celebrity Christian leaders who are experiencing moral failure and all the deconstruction that's going on um, within Christians right now. Um, not to mention for a year or more, people weren't attending worship gatherings and that has its own impact. Um, but I, I, I have to just lean on what Jesus said. That you know, He said He would build His church, and the gates mm. of hell won't prevail against it. And so, I think just filling my 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 mind and my mouth with those words of Jesus has has been helpful. But if if I was going to talk to my future self in twenty years, I would ask that question: How many mm. more pivots do we have ahead of us? What does the church need to shift in?
1: That's a great question, and and you and, and that's a very wise response. And so I don't want to cheapen it, but it does remind me when you said like, is the American church going to make it, you know, it reminded me of something like, you know, if the apostle Paul were here to, alive today, I had somebody send something to me and it said that he'd start out, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the churches of the United States of America, grace and peace from God, our father and Lord Jesus Christ. I don't really even know where to begin with you guys.
2: <laughs> I love that.
1: And they're, you know, like, I mean, I laughed, but I also kind of went ugh Mm. because that's probably true. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So, Mm. but that's a beautiful question, Adam. It's a beautiful question about where do we go, you know, moving forward. And, you know, one of the things that uh, you know I think you've you've mentioned to to Doug and myself on on different occasions is the growing sense of deconstruction in the stories of the people, not only in Burlington, but within your church. And we're, that's certainly not an isolated event in what, you know, you're doing. And, and in fact, Christianity Today, you know, their their most recent issue, you know, the the lead article was, wait, you're not deconstructing. Hmm. Um, and, and it's just all on the, the, how did we get here with deconstructing? So how do you, how do you pastorally work through that with, People in your congregation in a way that's helpful, uh, challenging, um, but not sharp or defensive. How have you navigated that?
2: I think it starts with something we've already talked about: is not having your identity wrapped up as the answer man. Like as a pastor, mm-hmm. sometimes you feel the pressure to be the the perfect caretaker, the perfect theologian that has all the answers. Um, you know, the perfect manager. There's all these things that you're pressured to to feel like you have to be. And I think when people are going through deconstruction, our tendency as pastors is to want to fix that. And want to provide answers to pull them out of that. My experience is that that's not helpful. That actually just being present with them while they're going through it and praying with them, I think has been the most uh, fruitful approach to to pastoring folks who are going through deconstruction. A.J. Swoboda wrote a great book that I just finished uh, last year, or this this since the year started here. Um, After doubt, how to deconstruct your faith without losing it, and that's an amazing resource. If you're a pastor and you have folks in your mm. churches who are kind of uh, wrestling with deconstruction, you don't know what to do. I'd highly recommend that book. It's mm. Really good advice for, for pastors.
0: Mm. Yeah. Adam, I'd love to <clears throat> kind of switch just a little bit for, um, yeah, just a question around, you you have kind of a unique staff structure where you guys have some, first of all, some of the coolest people in the world that work at your church, mm-hmm. but h- how do you guys cultivate a culture of health in your staff?
2: We have six people on our staff team and me included. I'm the only full-time and Then we have five part-time. Um, and we just decided a long time ago that team ministry and collaboration is worth it. It's messy. It's, it's um, we don't have a, our own church building. We don't have an office. Um, and so it even makes, makes it more complex and messy, but I wouldn't change it for the world. The folks that I work with. Oh my gosh. I, I, we, we love being together and working with each other. We trust each other and um, we value each other's voice and contribution and can I tell you one more story? When I, when I was a youth pastor, uh, we were in, in the, the last church that I was on staff at, we were given a building in in our town and we turned it into a youth center and we opened it up as a drop-in center for kids after school. We also had youth church services every Friday night. And we had just dozens and dozens of kids come to faith in Jesus. And it was a little town of 14,000 people, but we we probably had 150 teenagers coming to our worship services. And we flew this uh, kind of a big, big speaker out to do a a weekend of of church services for our, our, our youth in this building. And I wanted everything to be perfect. Right. And so I was leading worship and I got my youth worship band behind me and my friend DJ. It was a high schooler was playing bass and he was a great bass player but there was this kind of a lull and he was overplaying a bit and i and i reached my hand back our stage was small we were close together i reached my hand back and put my hands on his bass strings to get him to, 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 to stop and immediately when i did that i felt the holy spirit convict me and say who do you think you are like, do you want to be the do you want to be the man of power for the hour that just does everything great and runs everything and micromanages everything or do you want to trust people and do ministry with other people and that was the beginning of my um maybe shift in value to be like man i just need to like do something different i can't just be this central person who does everything even though i want it done my way i i have to i have to learn how to um trust other people and collaborate, even when it's messy, even when it doesn't go the way I don't want it to go. And I think that's one of the most important shifts in my ministry and in my life. Um, And I'm so thankful for our team, uh, for Abby and, and Ian and Luann and Jordan and Tasha, like such an amazing group of people to work with. And yeah, I I can't ever envision myself in a different ministry context than this collaborative one that we're in. I just can't. Mm.
1: Mm. Mm. You know, Adam, one of the things that I am so appreciative of are the way in which you're open to the Spirit teaching you things in the least likely of moments. Mm. Joe, being covered by his brother's blood and giving you a hug, the Lord showed up to you in a powerful way. Jesus, you said, was in that moment in one of the most important ways, putting your hand on DJ's bass strings That God shows up. I'm just as your friend, I'm so grateful for the openness that you have to allow God and his spirit to work in and through you and to teach you even when it's convicting that shaped you and continues to shape you. And so I just want to affirm that in you, Adam. I just have always loved that about you, but just the way in which you embrace those spirit moments and, uh, and recognize them and respond to them. So one of the many things I love about you, but I just couldn't go any further in this conversation without just saying, I'm, I'm so grateful for your posture of openness and receptivity and sensitivity to what the spirit is up to. I just love it. Oh, thanks, Sarah. You know, just as we're kind of landing the plane here, there are pastors around the country that listen to this, and some are encouraged, and some are hungry and wanting to stay sharp, and some are just teetering on the edge of saying, I think I'm going to throw the towel in. Without, and there's no pressure in this, but I'm just curious, what would you say, having experienced so much of that setback yourself over the years in Burlington, What what do you want to encourage pastors with? What would you want to say to them?
2: There were so many times when um, what the work we were doing here, I didn't honestly know if it was even going to be viable. Like times when I just say, I don't know if this is going to work, but there was also some conversations with my wife and I coming into this that, Hey, even if the, even if this doesn't work out, God's called us here and we're just going to figure out the next thing. And so it's just, again, for all those pastors who are like teetering and just hanging on, I would just say this, keep showing up, God will surprise you. It might not be the, the, the ministry or the way that you think, or the way he's going to come through in the way that you would imagine and envision. Um, but but he, if you keep showing up, he's going to be there. And he's going to surprise you. And, and there'll be twists and turns. But it's just that faithfulness of just just getting up and, and, and being there that is going to sustain that. And then they're going to see these surprising moments when the Holy Spirit shows up and, and they're going to be, where did that come from? And it's going to get them through the next week or the next month or the next year. Adam, that's
0: so encouraging. And my hope is that as pastors are, are listening, that they actually begin to believe that just the importance of showing up. I think that's one of those pieces of resilience that is often overlooked, right? And again, I appreciate even the way that you talked about the events being important, but it's not the most important thing. It's just about showing up. Um, Yeah, just our last question. This is something we've been doing this season. Could you leave us and leave the pastors today with a benediction?
2: Sure, sure. Brothers and sisters, as you go about the rest of your day and the rest of your week, may you remember that you're worth more than what you do, because you're a child of God. And may you know that he's with you, and that he's for you, and that his mercies are new every morning.
1: Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Monday Morning Pastor podcast today. Could you do us two favors? Number one, would you leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods? If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you could help us to spread the word. And number two, would you share this episode with two other pastors or leaders who you think would benefit from MMP? We would be deeply grateful if you could help us. Thanks in advance, and thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.